Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. Is the cloud a security risk? Companies and governments around the world now rely on the cloud for their day-to-day operations, and they've done so for a number of years. So you could assume from that evidence alone that it is not. And cloud providers quite naturally argue that their systems are as secure as on-premises IT. Perhaps more so as their scale allows them to invest in both the best security technology and the best people. Yet we are seeing significant security breaches and data losses via the cloud. One reason is that all too often, users of the cloud fail to secure their infrastructure. Misconfigured resources lie behind a significant, perhaps even the largest percentage, of cloud security breaches. This is supported by research recently carried out by security vendor Qualys. They've been monitoring cloud infrastructure across their customer base for their security research insights report. And some of the findings are quite shocking, suggests our guest today, Paul Baird, who's Qualys' EMEA CTSO. Much of this is down to just how easy it is to spin up and to deploy the cloud without the checks and balances of conventional IT. When somebody within the organization wanted uh, to run a service, they had to go to IT, they had to go to procurement to buy the, the, the software and the hardware. IT had to rack that physical hardware. They had processes and procedures in place to put firewall rules in place, access controls for the switches. So it was very locked down and very robotic. These days, as long as you've got a credit card, you could spin up a service very quickly and start hosting very sensitive and very private data on that service without anybody else in the company knowing about it. And you might not be doing it deliberately. Um, You could be doing it for best intentions, but because you're not security focused, um, you might just forget about those checks and balances that need to be done before you do something like that. I think that is a key issue. The CIO and the CISO and CDO, the chief data officer, doesn't necessarily know that all their sensitive data or their mission critical workflows have migrated to the cloud until something happens and, oh, what's happened? What's gone down? What's failed? Oh, it's them. It's that cloud provider or it's the connectivity to the cloud or there's been a breach. All those things. Is that a valid picture of what organizations are going through at the moment, that actually we've seen this incremental adoption of the cloud? The cloud has delivered great benefits in terms of cost, flexibility, ease of deployment, speed of deployment. But at the same time, it hasn't had that discipline that you were talking about from locking down, testing the applications, configuring the security before it gets rolled out, which is what happened where we were dealing with real iron in our basements. Absolutely. Um, And then within each of the cloud environments, you could be consuming um, resources from, I'm just going to pick on Google Cloud for the moment. Uh, And then for whatever reason, um, you then jump to Azure and then you might jump to AWS or Alibaba. So there could be a set of controls in place, a set of tools in place to potentially monitor that particular cloud environment. But because it is so easy to bounce within these environments as well. Um, People might just not know that you've changed provider, you've changed service. Um, The tool might be inadequate um, to being able to support, especially if it is very specific around that cloud provider as well. So I think the the checks and balances and the controls are, are, are very lacking. Is awareness changing though? 
are people now at least understanding that there potentially could be a problem? Prior to this report, I would have said yes. Looking at the, the report and the statistics, and bearing in mind that this is a report based on factual data rather than just uh, a, a questionnaire that's gone out to CISOs and CIOs and heads of, it tells a different picture. The fact that number one is is misconfigurations of, of cloud. So, so I would say no, they, I don't think things are changing. Let's run through the findings. Just give me a quick overview of what the key findings of the report have been. Key findings from the data that we've seen within Qualys customers is that misconfiguration is the number one risk factor that we've seen across um, our customers. They are missing basic benchmarking. CIS benchmarking has been around ever since I've been in IT, I think it's 2008 and probably um, older than that. It is a golden standard of benchmarking. And for the report to come back and say that on average across all three of the, the big players within the cloud platform, that 50% of these controls are are missing or failing is, is quite a scary statistic. The other one is the, the amount of internet-facing um, services that we're spinning up that have lack of security or lack, lack of controls around them as well. So again, these are things that we've been talking about for years, and they're relatively simple to control and fix. And I know that 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 that's saying easy from the vendor side. But again, these customers, the, the, this information, the customers have the data. This is not because they don't have the tooling in place to be able to understand that they are missing controls um, or the fact that they've not put a password on uh, an S3 storage bucket in, in Amazon. So why is this data not being actioned? Is it not getting to the right people? Is there politics in play? Why haven't um, these, these figures got better over time? And how far back are you looking here? So this is, this is brand new um, for us. We, we've created um, two reports this year. One of them, this one in particular, is very specific around cloud. Um, the other one was uh, more of a generalistic um, look at data from 2022. So it's last year's data um, that these reports are based on. Uh, and moving forward, we're going to do this uh, more often because I think it's extremely valuable data um, live and actionable data uh, that we can go back to our uh, customers. So you've said, for example, that over half of the internet-facing assets that you've found are not patched, and you've pointed, for example, to um, Log4Shell, which is a 68.5% installs that were detected were still not patched on internet-facing assets. And you're saying that companies are taking 136 days to remediate log4shell issues, which is a huge amount of time considering that, again, this is not a new vulnerability. Is that indicative of the problem or is that just specific to that particular issue? I think log4shell in general has been um, slow, taking away the, the cloud angle um, at the moment. The the patch rate of log4shell has been extremely slow. It came out in, in I think most of us remember where we were, December 2021 when it was announced. And it was unusual that it was weaponized and actively being exploited under 48 hours from that initial disclosure, which is 
a frightening turnaround for a vulnerability to be weaponized and being used when only five years ago we were talking just short of a year for uh, on average for a, um, a vulnerability to be weaponized um, and start being used so you can see that there is a distinct shift in how fast these bad actors are actually taking uh, vulnerabilities and starting to use them against us and i don't know if that's because of automation through ai we can talk about quantum computing if it's state-sponsored, but they are getting quicker and quicker. Um, and it seems that we're getting slower and slower to patch things like Log4Shell. I think the average last year across all weaponized uh, vulnerabilities was about 30.6 days um, it took, whereas it took the bad actor 19 days um, to weaponize that vulnerability. So you had that sort of gap of about 11 days where organizations could be potentially vulnerable to this um, uh, this threat. Uh, and again, if you're using automation, 11 days is a very long time. You're talking there about internet-facing cloud assets. So what do you understand by that? What does that mean? Anything that has got a public IP address is what we've classified as an internet-facing asset. Um, so, you know, web servers that are serving um, your your social media um, or data storage. Um, again, we'll use S3 buckets um, as an example that seems to be the one that keeps on coming up year on year um, in reports for being um, vulnerable. And when I say vulnerable, it's just because somebody hasn't put a password on these. I mean, there is a lot of websites that have spun up over the years that even do paid for services that scan and index all of these um, storage spaces that you can go in and and have a look and potentially download um, all of these files. So again, we've been talking about it in the industry for years, yet we don't seem to be changing that trend at the moment. Uh, and these are it's simple things to fix. Uh, and again, I know that's quite a, a broad brush. It's easier for me, easy for me to say that. But I have sat on the other side of the fence. Uh, up until I moved to Qualys, um, I'd always worked in the industry as a SOC manager, as a security architect, so I do get the challenges internally of, of having to um, to patch um, quickly uh, and remediating things and, and getting um, your message across as a security person across multiple teams. Because one thing I've noticed with cloud is it's, it's, it's always somebody else's problem. It's the cloud team's problem. It's IT's problem. It's engineering's problem. It's the developer's problem. Nobody seems to own the cloud like we did with traditional IT when it was the, you know, the server team, the IT team, all sat underneath the CIO. We don't seem to have an owner for the cloud um, within organizations, big organizations. And there's just another stat on that public access that I want to flag, which is quite interesting from your research, which said that uh, three quarters of Azure databases are misconfigured, leaving public network access enabled. I mean, that potentially is a huge risk, not just a risk of malware coming in, but actually a massive risk of data exfiltration. Yes. Um, and we should be scared about that. It's, it's a massive commodity now selling um, and exchanging uh, data encrypted uh, or not. Um, there is talk about uh, nation states um, storing data until the point where quantum computing can crack traditional uh, encryption, which some people say it's next year, some people say it's five years. So whether your data is encrypted or not, um, leaving databases open, leaving them publicly accessible, is you're asking for trouble. So 
why? Why do organizations not lock this stuff down? And again, coming back to what you were saying before about the configuration process when you had to acquire IT internally through the traditional route, is some of this because it's the cloud and people are setting it up who don't understand the risks? Or is there a perception that the cloud provider sorts it all out for you and you don't need to worry? I'm going to say yes to, to all of the above. I know this is a podcast and I have a big smile on my face at the moment because I think that's the million dollar question is why are organizations failing the simple checks and balances? I, I can only surmise going back through my experience that, for example, security, we talk about shift left and we talk about DevSecOps uh, a lot now, but even now security isn't involved in, in that process. Um, and because cloud is so agile and can be set up so quickly, I'm wondering if there, there's that transition over from that that test environment and dev environment that you were speaking about earlier on that was um, so prevalent in the cloud years ago, and then they've just transitioned that dev environment over to um, a live environment and serving whatever they do, um, and they've just forgot to check um, that the, the security benchmarks, um, basic hygiene has been applied. I don't think anybody will go out their way to doing this deliberately. Um, I think there's just a lack of understanding, a lack of process and a lack of procedure within organizations. And again, you always have that politics challenge because you have the security team that generally sits outside um, of um, the functions that are looking after the cloud, be it your dev teams or your, your IT teams or your service delivery teams. Um, and it's been able to start to collaborate more um, and bringing these teams together. So when you do start to um, spin up these environments, um, security is there to support um, the building of these environments um, rather than looking like a blocker at the end when they're saying, no, you cannot um, put this service live because you're missing all of these controls. Um, businesses are struggling um, at the moment uh, so the quicker they can get a service up and running, the quicker that service can generate money for them. The last thing they need is security coming along and saying, stop, you can't do that anymore. And I think that's still one of the problems is security hasn't been brought along on the journey. Could the cloud vendors do more to pre-configure their systems so that the default is that the protection is on? So for example, public access is disabled until you click a button to allow it, and that may potentially have to require some level of authorization if that's how you set things up. Absolutely. Um, but the, the same could be said for somebody driving a car badly. How much can the manufacturers do to put things in place? And they do a very good job now with your lane warnings as an example, but there's only so far you can get. If people still ignore um, those controls, then there, there's still an accident waiting to happen. But you're right. It, 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 there are some simple things that, that the providers can do to have security as a default uh, rather than as an exception. Um, and having that, that change process in place to say, well, I, I want that service to be public facing. Um, I need those firewall ports to be changed because of these reasons and giving reasons rather than the reverse of security coming in, having to give reasons to why they need to apply, apply sorry, security controls. And again, we don't necessarily know when we deploy something out onto the internet how it might be used in the future. So there may be a use case at the moment that is is okay to leave those privileges 
there. It's probably not good practice, but it's okay. There will be no real harm because there's no real data. We talked about test and dev. Using dummy data, for example, doesn't really matter. Using pseudonymized data might not matter as much. But as you move into the more sensitive realms, or as you start to run real-life business processes on it, the risks just increase rapidly. You've heard um, people, tools, and processes, something that, that, that governs um, security. I think they're, they're all outweighed a little bit. Sometimes organizations put too much emphasis on tools. Sometimes it's on the people. Sometimes it's on the process. And we just need to have a look at those three controls. Um, and try and level the playing field across all three. Because um, I've worked for organizations that to make a security change, um, say, for example, to apply um, a firewall rule um, to a cloud service, took 45 approvers. Um, and if the approvers weren't, um, if there was a time lag of 48 hours, then it would reset and you'd have to start that process again. So this is, we're, we're then into that, position of too much process, too heavy process. So is this because um, we've transitioned from traditional IT into the cloud and we haven't moved our processes to follow that? So they're not as agile uh, as they should be to react to um, you know, cloud threats, cloud vulnerabilities. Uh, I, I think organizations need to take just a little step back uh, and just look at what they've got and what controls they've got and what tools they've got and try and harmonize everything. And a level of consistency across the board is going to help there, because if you set your base level, we talked about secure by design and DevSecOps and moving left and all those things. But actually, if you say this is the minimum that we will allow, this is the minimum that you need to ensure is happening in terms of understanding the criticality of the data and information and workflows. Would that help? Yeah, businesses need to get together, um, be it your GRC teams, um, your, your, your governance legal teams, the board whoever, to, to set those minimums. It shouldn't be security. Um, we should look at risk. Uh, we, we've been talking a lot about risk over the last look, a year and a half of the language of security needs to change. We need to start to adapt our language to, to fall in with what everybody else has been talking about for years and quantifying risk so businesses understand. And the only way that security can apply those controls is understanding what the business risks are because they might not understand for example the data um all they're seeing this is as a as a service um that's being consumed and not understanding the potential data um that's in it so the business needs to get together to say that this is the risk um, for this environment and then security then can put those controls on top of it so it needs to be a two-way communication um it can't be just driven from our from the security teams and when you talk about misconfiguration in the report as a broad sense, is that simply that configurations, security measures have not been applied, or is it actually that measures have been put in, but they're incorrect and, and therefore not as effective as they could be? The, the majority of the misconfigurations we've talked about are they haven't been put in place. Uh, and I'll give you a couple of examples um, within Azure environments. 99% of the disks that we saw weren't either encrypted or they weren't using customer keys. Um, so only 1% of the disks, Azure disks that we can see have actually been properly um, set up and configured. Uh, another one is we've talked for years now about multi-factor authentication. We do it all the time. Um, most people will know from trying to purchase something with a credit card now, 
having to jump on your app and approve that. Yet we're not applying these things to critical accounts within the cloud. We're still not using MFA uh, and setting up multi-factor authentication properly within cloud environments for accounts that have you know, critical and high level access across um, the organization's data. So it is purely missing simple things. Um, and for the people that we've seen in this report and the organizations, they have access to this data um, within their own environment. So the question back is, I think I've mentioned it before, is why is this data not trickling up? Or is it, has it gone um, to the board and they've accepted this uh, you know, as a risk um, so they can carry operating you know, across this challenging time. I, I don't know the answer. It's certainly a question um, that I'm starting to ask more of the C-suite. Now I have this report and I have these statistics. Um, I'm asking those questions that are you know, not specifically to Qualys customers, because I don't know who has misconfigurations uh, within their environments, just in general. Um, are they being approached by their security teams um, to say that there is issues with the configurations in their cloud or are boards and C-suites just letting their teams get on with it because they think they know what they're doing. Now, most of the time when guests come on this show, we talk about the challenges and the threats, and then we talk about the remediation and what businesses can do to address external factors that may be impacting them. In this case, it's almost a reverse that we're actually encouraging or I'll put it to you as a question, are we encouraging threat actors to come in because we've been so poor at securing the cloud? And criminal groups being criminal groups, they're going to say, well, if you're happy to leave your valuables in the car and not lock your car or leave your front door unlocked with cash on the table, we're going to come in and get it. It's human nature. Is it that? Are we actually encouraging people to come in and exploit the cloud because we've simply not locked the door? Absolutely. Um, in, why should a, a threat actor create a new ransomware or new malware, target individual employees to get that malware running, to then gain access to their device, to then escalate their privileges, um, to then move into more sensitive data when we've bought a brand new door and we've just left the key in the lock and potentially the door wide open at the same time? We're asking for trouble. It doesn't surprise me threat actors are just constantly scanning uh, ranges for, for open ports and open um, vulnerabilities. I spun up a, a WordPress server and put some logging on it. And within hours, I had over 100,000 hits. Um, this is a, had nothing, no data on it, had a random domain name created. It just sees how much automation is going on. And if they hit you know, a, a service, that isn't secure and it is open, then they're going to explore um, to see what they can find. And this is the point where the threat actor could bury themselves within the corporate environment and, and sit there for days, weeks, months, years, um, living off the land because we've left that cloud door open. And the threat actor is quite agnostic there as to whether they're looking for data, whether they're looking for privilege escalation, whether they're looking for a move through a supply chain or lottery into another organization. They'll take whatever's open. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and at that point, you've got the um, the access brokers. So they've secured access to an environment. And then they, they're selling those keys, those skeleton keys, as it were, um, back to other threat actors that would then exploit that hole um, to go after 
um, data um, to take down the organization, to try and think what their, their, their motives are um, for when they get access to it. It's a commodity. What then, what then should a CISO do? And what should they do immediately? What are those immediate actions that they should take now? In light of, yes, I appreciate your data is anonymized, but in light of the fact that this is over a reasonably big sample, you're a pretty big vendor, you've got a lot of people running your tools on their systems. So it would be reasonable to say that most enterprises will be suffering from at least some of the vulnerabilities you've identified. So what should a CISO do to lock them down or start the process? The CISO needs to turn around to um, whatever team is looking after their cloud environments and ask the simple question is, do you have an understanding of our risk within the cloud? I know that, again, that sounds a very simplistic question, but it then starts to open up uh, other avenues and other doors. Do we, as an organization, can we see all of our cloud instances first and foremost? Can we see every asset that is within the cloud? And therefore, what is our risk appetite across all of those services? To find out what is um, what is potentially wrong with the, the services that they've got delivering um, potential information back to their customers. And would it help a board or a CISO to look at this either directly or bring someone in to look at it through the point of view, through the eyes of an attacker or potential attacker, so they can take an outsider's view as to how their business would appear to somebody who might be coming at it with malicious intent. An outside opinion is always a strong opinion with an organization because they have no political agenda, If certainly if you're working for a very large organization. So having that voice that is not um, um, aligned with a particular department or a particular person is always going to help um, send that message back up to the board. Um, with tools like the, the Qualys platform, we can show you exactly what um, an external attacker can see within your organization. So again, Qualys customers have that view of what an external attacker can see and what they could potentially get to. So that information is readily available to Qualys customers. They just need to utilize it. Should a CISO be trying to look at their organization as if they were trying to break into it? The industry started to change. Um, we've always looked at that inside-outside view. Um, but that is changing with things like the external attack surface monitoring, where we're looking outside to inside now. Um, so we're looking at everything uh, at to what a threat actor could potentially do. I know... Um, we can say, well, what about insider threats? Yes, that's always going to be there no matter what. Um, but I think closing down um, those vulnerabilities, that low-hanging fruit um, from what a threat actor can see, we want them to work for their money at the end of the day. If, if, a, if a threat actor, especially state-sponsored, wants to get into your environment, they will get into your environment. Um, but is it going to take them 20 minutes because you've left the door open or is it going to take them years because the level of security they've got, the levels of encryption that you've got? We're not here to make their job easier. We're here to make it harder for them. And then having that information is the first step. Absolutely. Getting that information and then um, transposing that information into a way that the board is going to understand if it's a CISO that has it, the peers 
to understand. We still have an issue within um, within this industry um, that we talk above um, people because of the, the technical nature of our job. Um, so it's on the CISOs to bring that information down to a point where everybody can understand what they're talking about. And again, just relaying that back to risk. Talking about risk, businesses have been operating based on risk for years now. So talking that one unified language across um, the whole organization is going to help you be able to, and I say you as in the CISO, to start to change um, and start to secure more because people get it. People will start to understand it. Boards will start to understand the risks that they're or have potentially accepted over the years because they didn't understand the nuances. Paul Baird on how organisations can take steps to make it harder for attackers to breach defences rather than leaving their doors open. That though is all for this episode of Security Insights. In our next programme, we'll discuss the threat of cyber war and how it could impact businesses that don't actually see themselves as being in the front line. Our guest is the academic, government advisor and author, Professor Richard Benham. I hope you can join us then. Until then, do catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, or subscribe and rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.